Welcome to this special edition of the Cavett Ships podcast from the Navy League Sea Air Space Exposition just outside Washington, D.C. The Cavett Ships podcast is sponsored in part by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering hard stuff done right. And by GE Marine, a GE aerospace company offering unparalleled power and propulsion for ships from the biggest combatants to the smallest, fastest patrol boats. GE's propulsion solutions are ready for the next generation of sea power. And by Helicon Chemical. Helicon Chemical is solving the military's biggest pain point, getting more range out of conventional and hypersonic weapons. Using their patented technology, Helicon offers the ability to upgrade legacy missiles by combining the stability of solid rocket fuel with the performance of a liquid propellant. With us today is Kerry Wilkinson, the president of Ingalls Shipbuilding and executive vice president with Huntington Ingalls HII. Welcome back to the podcast, Ms. Wilkinson. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, your yard is, uh, you know, you have your yard in Pascoe, Mississippi, perhaps the largest single shipyard in the United States. You build more kinds of ships in that one yard than any other U.S. shipyard. Flight 2 and now Flight 3 Arleigh Burke class destroyers, DDGs. America-class amphibious salt ships, LHAs, San Antonio-class amphibious transport dock ships, LPDs, all for the U.S. Navy, and Berthoff-class national security cutters for the U.S. Coast Guard. Two of those four classes are the subject of great discussion these days, if not outright controversy. You're one of two yards that build the destroyers, along with General Dynamics Bath Ironworks in Maine. And Navy and Pentagon leaders are claiming that industry cannot meet the goal of at least two destroyers per year. And now the production line that has been building the San Antonio class LPDs is in jeopardy with the Pentagon instituting a nominal pause, a six year pause in procurement of those ships. And that along with the impending closure of the national security cutter line as you reach the natural end of that class would seem on the one hand to open you up to even more production of other ship types, but only if the Navy decides to order them. Where would you like to start? Would you like to talk, talk about capacity, destroyers or LPDs? They're all on the table. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, and certainly they're all connected to one another, are they not? Uh, so I, I'll start just kind of with what's happening in the yard today, right? We have some, uh, some pretty exciting milestones on the agenda here in the coming months and uh, throughout the rest of the year. And so in spite of all of the conversation, all of the things in the news, we remain focused on people and on performance and executing our contracts. Uh, so, you know, we find ourselves in similar circumstances as we have been in prior cycles. And so there's that piece of it, right? And we've got a, a playbook, if you will, for that and working with our Navy partners and Coast Guard partners. Um, but as far as what's happening in the yard, it is very much the same as when we when we spoke last uh, last time several months ago. And, uh, and we're seeing some returns on that investment, right? Whether it's from a time perspective, new programs, et cetera, but very people focused. We've had some good hiring trends. Uh, we're very focused on our shipbuilders, and so uh, the the reward for that is one: we want folks to you know feel great about coming to the shipyard. We consider it an honor to do what we do uh, every day. We're glad our customers turn to us to fulfill the needs that they have, uh, and we're going to continue to try and perform and execute so that they can continue to come back to us and give us more work. Uh, but from a milestone perspective, you know we've got DDG 123 sitting on the east bank right now, uh, looking amazing. Uh, that ship will sail away this week, so we're excited about that. DDG-125, our first Flight 3 destroyer, that ship is getting ready to get underway again for its next sea trial. It's uh, progressing on a path through absolute 100% collaboration of all the stakeholders uh, on that program, whether it be from a Navy perspective, 
you know, we've got the, the, the PEOs, IWS, uh, certainly SHIPS, and, and all of the stakeholders absolutely engaged to make sure that that program is successful and gets that capability to the fleet. Uh, ANFIVS, we've got LPD-29. That ship will go to trials uh, uh, this year, and we intend to deliver it at the end of the year. Uh, so we've got a lot of good things going on. LHA-8 is creating a monstrous shadow up on the hill for us right now. And LHA-9 is early in production, but uh, certainly a lot of things going on. And as you mentioned, national security cutters, uh, NSC-10 will continue on its path toward trials and delivery this year. NSC-11, it's early in the contract. But to your point, we absolutely have foreseen the potential sunsetting of that program at some point. We're proud to do the work that we do for the Coast Guard and for the Navy. Uh, so that's kind of a snapshot, Chris, as far as all of the other things that are going on out in the environment. We are laser focused on execution and making sure our people have what they need to perform. So this issue of, of capacity, um, and we've been down to the yard. We've, we've, we've spoken about this before on this podcast. Um, you're, you have a vast facility. You have expanded really um, to prepare the old uh, East Yard for, uh, for further work. Um, you seem to be waiting, awaiting a demand signal. And yet a lot of the signal we get out of Washington is that you can't meet the demand. Um, what's going on here? Yes, sir. So a great question. There is a lot of conversation on the uh, on the landscape with regard to capacity. And as I think we briefly touched on last time we spoke, you know, capacity is defined in a number of different ways, you know, for a shipyard or for any facility, certainly. And so for us, capacity from a facility standpoint, as you mentioned, we've got a lot of real estate here in Pascagoula. Uh, and the East Bank is, you know, we're using it for some parts of construction, but there's certainly a lot more opportunity over there. So from a capital investment perspective, the shipyard has never been better positioned to do the work that's required going forward, both today and in the future. Uh, as far as the um, you know, additional work, the Navy has entrusted the DDG-1002 to us for a combat system activation and, and the 1000, 1001, 1002, subsequent to that for prompt strike, the CPS uh, work, uh, was a great opportunity for us to get involved in that statement of work. And again, an honor for the Navy to have chosen us to do that. So, you know, we see uh, indications. We've got additional capacity uh, from a real estate standpoint. Our capacity discussion is absolutely focused on people, as I'm sure you're hearing from many other shipyards and really manufacturing at large across the country. Um, and so uh, back to the investments in people from an attraction retention standpoint, for us, that's where that conversation resides. And we're doing, you know, we, we've, we've put a lot of initiatives in place over the last year, year and a half. Um, and every week we think of something else that we think could be an investment in our folks to let them know how important they are and how uh, much we appreciate them coming to the shipyard and doing the good work that they do every day. So capacity yeah. for us, all about people, and we're seeing some good trends there. And we're going to continue to do everything we can, pull out all the stops to make sure folks understand how much we value them and how important the work that they do is. There's two issues here. with the, So an issue with uh, the pace of construction on destroyers and cost on the LPDs. So on the destroyers first, um, I think you're actually in that you're there. There were delays on the Lena Sutcliffe Higby, which is the DDG 123, the last flight to your building mm -hmm. um, because you brought the, you, the Navy brought forward um, some of the features, the technology that is going into the first flight three, the DDG 125, the okay. Jack Lucas. Um, yes, some, some of that went into, so, so some of that, you know, discovery or what, or new design implementation of the flight three actually was, you, you, you sort of have a flight two a plus there with 123. Yes, there were delays incurred in that because of that, but that was working with the Navy. That was, that, that was yes, agreed sir. upon. 
um, mm-hmm. as a result, that one that one's somewhat late, but 125 is is not so late. Um, and you're I think you're in the process of, of delivering about three ships, three destroyers in a year and a half, something like that. Yes, um, sir, that's right. So it, it, it seems like at least your yard is on pace in destroyers in the in the big picture overall. Is that is that a fact? Yes. Yes, sir. We're, we're marching down the path we set. And gosh, it was probably, what, three or four, five years ago now that we negotiated the Flight 3 upgrade to the DDG-125. And, and uh, you know, the approach that the Navy has taken with Flight 3, uh, we've complimented it before, but the opportunity to cut in some of those changes er- on earlier hauls, to your point, mm-hmm. as early as DDG-117 for us, 119, 121, 123, bringing those capabilities on board a bite at a time really stepped down the risk. Because if you look at Flight 3, it really is a major class upgrade. So we're really pleased with how that has turned out. Um, we've had some great engagement across that stakeholder wheel that you look at of all the parties involved to make something so complex come to life. Uh, so that is just a, you know, a pillar in that program, the, the approach taken there. And we're leveraging that, by the way, and other things, uh, including DDGX. So from a destroyer standpoint, I think your, your comments are great. And, um, and like I said, we're focused on getting that Flight 3 capability out into the fleet. We know how important that is. Right. Uh, to segue over to the LPDs for just a second, yeah, there has been a lot of conversation around, uh, you know, cost and price and whatnot, and I certainly can't speak to the numbers other folks have been using. I can speak to shipbuilder cost and, and talk about, again, the relationship between Navy and industry and our suppliers on the LPD program overall as we have cut in some major changes to that class from Flight 1 to Flight 2 over the past several years. That team has done a remarkable job of taking cost out of the platform from a shipbuilder cost standpoint. We've stayed within about 5%, and that's the only piece I can speak to, obviously, um, and within uh, 5% over a co- the course of about six or seven years span. Uh, so we're pretty proud of what that team, Navy industry and supplier team, have done uh, to make changes, uh, reduce the NRE associated with those changes. As you know, we're in 3D modeling and, and things that help us do that but really do that in a very deliberate way uh, to, to hold the, the cost of those ships uh, from a build perspective uh, and, and keep bringing that capability to the fleet. So really proud of what that program has done through that collaboration. And and for, for, for the listeners, I mean, just to sort of, sort of recap that, uh, this is the San Antonio class has been under production for a couple of decades, more than that now. Um, the Navy, just, uh, did the ser- Navy and Marines did a series of studies a few years ago came up with uh, the, fo- the follow-on class for the landing ship docks, which are now coming out of, wouldn't be class, now coming out of service, and came up with this Flight 2, Flight two LPD design, which is, and, and, and in some ways, um, a less elaborate version of the LPD-17s. It's already a, a bit cheaper than the $2 billion that was going for the LPD-17s. Um, this has not been an issue until all of a sudden now, um, and of course, this week we we find out that um, OSD is actually providing the Marines with alternative designs. Are you involved in any of that design work right now? In in, in terms of alternate alternatives yeah. to the LPD seventeen, or are you just building what you're building? No, absolutely, we're building what we're building for sure. Uh, continuing to cut in changes as the the requirements evolve, and we're happy to evolve with those and be agile and respond to that. Uh, but we certainly do uh, have a team that's looking on, you know, looking at what does LPD, what's LPD next, whatever that becomes. Uh, we certainly would like to be a part of that, and um, and so we've we've been engaged with our customers to that end. Harry, what does a strategic pause mean for Ingalls? 
I mean, what, what is the, I, I appreciate the fact that you don't want to dispute numbers and um, you know, it's not appropriate to mm -hmm. go tit for tat with Navy leadership, but what does a strategic pause do to your ability to be ready for other work and to, um, you, you know, for the overall health of the shipyard? Yes, sir. No, it's a good question. And obviously we, we spent a lot of time thinking and talking about that and it really comes back to people, right? So you guys know we like LPDs on about a two-year cadence. Uh, it helps us move people efficiently from one program to the next, uh, one ship to the next, and gets that learning curve where we want it to be because we want to be as affordable as we can possibly be, right? So um, so interrupting that cadence uh, absolutely is harmful. About half of our workforce is amphibs, about half destroyers and, uh, and uh, cutters. And so uh, when you look at a facility the size of Ingalls or any comparable facility, any facility really, right, um, we're talking about thousands of jobs. Um, and so we're, we're acutely aware of what, you know, a pause can mean to us. We have some ability to, to offset some of that. Like I said, we were really honored to have that uh, DDG 1000, 1001, 1002 work come our way uh, for a number of reasons, but certainly from a retention of our uh, shipbuilding uh, community here. So uh, for us, it's all about people. Uh, and we'll look for continuity in that because if we're ever asked to stand up and, you know, in, in times of, you know, you look on the news and every day there's something new that you're, you're contemplating as far as an outcome. Um, but if, if Ingalls needs to stand up, we want to be ready to stand up. We're going to continue to do what we're doing and executing on our contracts. Um, but if there's ever a need for us to stand up and do more, we want to be in the position to do that. And so we need the workforce for that. We certainly have the facility. Uh, but without the facility, the facility is the skin and bones. The people are the, the spirit and the soul and the heart, right? When I was in uniform, when we would talk about communicating to sailors, we would talk about, um, you know, uncertainty leads to anxiety, which causes all sorts of problems for, for our people. I imagine it's the same for shipbuilding. How do you manage, whether it's LPDs or whether it's something else, how, how do you manage this sort of, uh, you know, up and down of, we don't have capacity, we do have capacity, we're going to pause this, we're going to pause that. What, what sort of challenge does that present to you and your leadership team at Ingalls? Well, to your point, I mean, I think, you know, the, the very nature of it, we understand, you know, how complex, um, I'll say the environment is, how many folks play a role. You know, we, we talk about shipbuilders, we think about them here in Pascagoula or around the globe, the folks that are, are supporting the ships in the fleet. Um, shipbuilding is a much larger community, right? There are a lot of people that move levers and push buttons and enable this industry to do what it does for the country. Uh, and so that's an ecosystem for sure. Um, so uh, yeah, it can be distracting if you let it, um, the ebbs and flows and things, but obviously we, we know how to do this. Uh, we work with our, our, our customer partners uh, and other folks uh, to make sure that we stay as, I'll say, stable and predictable as possible. But in the meantime, especially the down and in piece of it, we just focus on doing what we do every day as well as we can possibly do it and as efficiently as we can possibly do it. And the rest, for the, for the majority of the people here in Pascagoula, my job is to try and not let that distract anybody, right? It's my job and others to go try and move those levers and push those buttons and enable all of those miraculous things that happen in the shipyard to happen day over day, week over week. I need to, to keep that off of the backs of the people that are doing extraordinary things every day. Last question for me. Um, what other work are uh, are you guys going after in uh, in 23? We talked a little bit about it when we talked to you prior to the Surface Navy Association, but you know, where where is your head not only on the the projects that you and Chris talked about, but what other work would you like to go after and would you like to see come to Ingalls? Well, the short answer is anything that needs to to keep shipbuilders in Pascagoula. Right. So, I mean, you think about the other programs that are out there, like we've already been talking about prompt strikes. So that was great. 
there are frigate second build yard is all over the environment. There is ASX. There's you know these other programs that certainly are of interest and in, in, in a sweet spot for Pascagoula. But but fundamentally the answer is whatever retains our folks and keeps them uh, doing industrious work on things that are important to the country and important to us here locally. Uh, and anything new that we need to contemplate to do that will do, and we want to support our customers and their needs. And so if they need us to stand up and do something, then we want to be in a position to do that. Quick, quick follow-up, you mentioned Frigate. Do you think that, you know, given that Ingalls is, a, um, I guess, a tandem yard or a, a partner yard um, with, with Bath in, in that you both build the same class, do you think that puts you in a unique position to be the second yard for Frigate? I mean, are there lessons learned in being, you know, one of two yards um, as opposed to, you know, the only shipbuilder of a certain class? Yeah, no, I, I certainly think that there are skill sets and, and muscle memory that you develop working with a partner as a leader of follow yard uh, that are unique to that circumstance. Um, but I will say generally the way that I think about, you know, sort of the environment is, you know, any shipyard is a competitor with another shipyard, but we're collaborators first, right? We build ships, we do important work. Our work is a, it's a people business. Um, and so the, the extent to which we can work together to keep the industry healthy, I think is absolutely the right mindset to take. Yeah, we'll compete from time to time on programs, but the first opportunity is for us to talk about as a community how important the work that we do is, how important manufacturing work is generally across the country, how we've got lots of jobs for people that want to do great things and, and do something bigger than themselves. Uh, so I think all of those are great opportunities for us to work together as opposed to be focused on the competition on the landscape and the other things that we sometimes get, get focused on. Uh, you mentioned ASX. This is the submarine tender replacement. Uh, this was not expected, yes, but, it, but uh, the Navy brought it forward into the FY24 request. At sort sort of in lieu of an LPD, uh, you are Huntington Ingalls is, is is bidding on the ASX submarine tender, correct? Yeah, well, we have a study contract today, right? So we've been uh, working the design element of it. Uh, we'll look for fit in the yard, and uh, I think you know we're expecting some movement here in the near term uh, right. as far as documents from the Navy. So you know we we assess every single one of those opportunities individually and and where we find them uniquely positioned on the landscape. So we'll get the details of that and and take a firm look, but certainly it would be in the sweet spot of a, of what uh, what we do here. Okay. Well, folks, that's all we have time for. You know, our guest today has been Carrie Wilkinson. She's the president of Ingalls Shipbuilding, a division of HII Huntington Ingalls Industries. HII, of course, is a sponsor of this podcast, which we appreciate, but they have not influenced this discussion. Ms. Wilkinson, thanks again for being here as always. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it certainly is an absolutely beautiful day to build ships. <laughs> Every day is a beautiful day to build ships. <laughs> that is a fact. All right. Thank you, ma'am. So the biggest and most effective weapons carried by ships and aircraft tend to be missiles and rockets, and how those weapons are powered can greatly increase their effectiveness and efficiency. Helicon Chemical is a small company with what it claims is a real game changer over conventional fuels that power these weapons. Helicon Chemical's chief executive, Dr. Wes Naylor, is here now to talk more about how they can improve the performance of today's solid rocket fuels. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Naylor. Chris, thank you so much for having us aboard today. All right. So what have you got? What is it? What what miracle have you come up with? <laughs> well, it's, you know, miracles are not born out of, uh, you know, 
Empty spaces are the result of a lot of work. Uh, our founder and chief technology officer, Dr. David Reed, uh, started his uh, postdoc work uh, with funding from the Missile Defense Agency, very much looking around how we could improve the performance of solid rocket fuels and energetics. And uh, nine years of hard work later of bootstrapping the company and sewing together SBIRs and OTAs, uh, we've come up with a product that uh, we are now going into production that significantly enhances uh, the conventional state-of-the-art solid propellants that are used in almost every weapon system uh, in all the branches, but specifically on Navy ships today. Before I even get into what your product is doing, uh, name name two or three weapons that, that you're looking at. The core of uh, U.S. Navy inventory is the entire SM system, everything that's on an Aegis the, ship. The standard missile systems, these are standard missiles. Exactly. And threes and sixes. And that's kind of the core of the uh, U.S. Navy's capability set uh, from uh, the surface platforms. And uh, then, of course, uh, we were looking at improving the performance and range of air-to-air -air and uh, air-to-surface uh, missiles that would be coming off of the aircraft on the aircraft carriers as well. So in a nutshell, for and, and for people who didn't major in chemistry, which includes me, um, what what does your product do to, to the existing fuels? Nor did I. My advanced work's in uh, modeling and simulation. But uh, so at the material science level, what it does is when you take a look at a rocket fuel, there's three basic components that make it work. You've got a propellant, and that's been maximized in, you know, aluminum is kind of the uh, item of choice that's used for the fuel. It burns very hot. It burns, you know, not that efficiently, but it puts out a lot of power. And then you've got something called an oxidizer that allows it to burn. And then there's something called a binder, which really holds that all together. And historically, no work has been done to move that technology forward as a performance enhancement for about 50 years. And that's where our founder really did his work to say, here's a component that hasn't been upgraded. Uh, can we figure out a way to get performance out of something that was really just a mechanical piece to hold the fuel together? And we very successfully built that out and uh, now have the ability to produce it. You know, you talk about just being more efficient getting more energy out of what you have. Your, your mm -hmm. example here is, you know, think of firewood with smoke, with lots of smoke and soot, smoke, smoke and soot going up a chimney compared to clean burning propane. Um, you've got pictures of conventional fuel with a kind of a smaller flame and a big flame coming out with, with a helicon fuel. Uh, I mean, this is really what you're trying to do is make it burn more efficiently, getting more out of what's already there. Is that the idea? It is in large part, uh, as we said, uh, you know, aluminum is a good fuel, but it doesn't really burn easily or efficiently. And what we've managed to do through the actual underlying technology is something called a metallic polymer composite, which uh, we grow the aluminum into the composite at the you know microscopic level. And what it allows is for the propellant to burn more evenly and get more efficiency out of it while also injecting a little bit more aluminum into it. So you're getting a little more fuel in there. So it's a combination of the two. So, uh, you know, I mean, this, you're, you're a good example of, I think, a number of small companies where you have only about 20 employees. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, we've uh, experienced about uh, 
200% growth in our employees in the last nine months. Uh, uh, our work has started to take notice and we're starting to get more investment from the Air Force and the Navy and others. So uh, uh, we're in a pretty rapid growth spurt right now. I mean, one, one of the interesting things here I, I found for interesting for a long time is these you know smaller companies, sometimes only, only a couple people, um, two dozen might even be a big company um, that have a new idea a new technology, a new approach that they're trying to interest larger, larger um, companies and also program managers in the Navy mm -hmm. and the Air Force and elsewhere in their product. And it's kind of a, it's, it's, a, it's almost like a dance sometimes when people, people are looking for a partner. The big companies are also looking for, for big ideas that they can, they can then acquire. Um, so it's all it's all part of capitalism. But it's all it's all a real dance. Sometimes the military folks that I've in some of my experience have been the people in the middle trying to trying to marry people up. Essentially, have you talked to these people? Have you talked to those people? Let me introduce you to them. Where are you in this process? It's it, I mean, it sounds like you're starting to take off now after having tried this for many years. It's a really good uh, description that you put out there. And, you know, we are exactly in that space where we're transitioning from you know, laboratory developmental, you know, proof of concept up to say a TRL technology readiness level of six, which is where you start to cross into platforms of record. So actual weapons programs. And that's where we are right now as we've proven this out as a basic technology, but then you have to partner with the program offices to get it into actual weapon systems because that's how the acquisition side of it works. I think one of the advantages that we really have in this is we're not trying to displace anyone. We're trying to bring what I refer to as an open architecture for energetics approach to this. You know, we currently work with every major player in this field, well, the, you know, the equip, original equipment manufacturers, the OEMs, the lead systems integrators, the folks who build the rocket engines, and we bring something to it that enhances all of them but we're trying very much to work hand in hand with the government to get these things qualified so that they don't get vendor locked, which is often, you know, the result of what you were describing is one company will try to acquire it and then it can only be used there. Our entire approach with this is across all four services and across all the industry to make this material solution available to all of them. Uh, so we're kind of inserting at a unique point in the supply chain for that. How, I mean, how how would you go about that? What's your what's your business goal here? I mean, so you haven't, you know, you talked about standard missiles, which are made by Raytheon, but it sounds like you're not trying to get a partnership with just Raytheon. What is your goal here from a from an organizational constructive point of view? So what the real goal is, is to qualify, and this is part of one of the uh, efforts we have ongoing right now, is to take our material solution and qualify it to go into, say, any propellant in the Air Force or the Navy inventory. So it almost becomes a prescribable item by the people who put the requirements together. We want more range. We know this technology is available. Uh, we're putting this uh, upgrade of an older missile up for bid and we want to improve the range. We want you to look at this material solution as part of that. So then it's open for anyone who wants to bid into it can go, okay, the Navy, the Air Force have qualified this upgrade. 
if we put this into our solution, we'll get X percent increase range and we'll be able to meet the Navy's requirement goals on that. So that is kind of the piece. We're not positioning ourselves to compete with Raytheon or Boeing or Aerojet or ATK who actually make the motors. We're supplying something that makes their performance better. You think like a, a licensed product, something like that? That is that some degree of that. Yes, we are standing up our manufacturing right now. We're taking, we are in the process under contract. Uh, you know, we've been doing this at the laboratory scale and we're putting our prototype plant. Uh, it's being built as we talk so that we can demonstrate how we can get past the problem that most smalls have, which is how do you scale? Right. And you have to be able to demonstrate you can produce to scale. Before we go, you have 3D printable solid hybrid rocket fuel. How does 3D printable get into hybrid rocket fuel? So uh, we have done uh, foundational work on this. We've uh, worked with a couple of different companies. There are a couple of companies out there who are under contract with uh, uh, the federal government in a number of ways to do this. And there are a couple of different uh, plastic solutions. A ABS is a type of plastic, which is one of them. And again, because of the unique characteristics of our product, it can be blended in with that material that's then printed into a fuel. So it really has, you know, like any material solution, it's not that you're producing, you know, a specific rocket fuel, you're producing something that improves the performance of a number of different potential fuels. And that really opens up the market. And that's why our approach we think is pretty, pretty wise. We don't have to go and try and take over one weapon system or one OEM. You know, we've got something that just, you know, kind of like the old BASF tagline, you know, we don't make rockets, we make rockets better. And anyone can benefit from that. Okay. Well, this has been really interesting. Folks, we've been talking with Wes Naylor. He is the chief executive of Helicon Chemical, trying to bring better weapons to you and, every, and everybody in the service. Thank you for being here today, Wes. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate the opportunity. That does it for this episode. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And for Chris Cavus, thanks for listening and bye-bye. Hey.